you ever stop to think about your neighborhood? How it affects you? How it makes you feel? When you walk down the street, do you feel safe? Do you feel happy? Is there a corner store, a park, a school? How do you take stock of the neighborhood where you live and how it affects your quality of life? So uh, we're on Hobart Street where I've lived for 25 years. It's changed a lot in the quarter century that I've been here. Um, neighborhood's gentrified. You'll see lots of people walking their dogs, a lot of kids. Kids have actually grown up. My son was born here, he's 15. Uh, and a lot of kids have grown up with him, um, which has been kind of cool. How safe do you feel walking around right now? Oh, well, first of all, we're in the middle of a densely packed and somewhat uh, crime-ridden city right now. Uh, but I've lived here for 25 years without any problems for me and my family, so I feel very safe in this area. This is, it's a diverse, complicated neighborhood, um, uh, but it's my neighborhood and uh, one that I, I've grown to love. So, Ken, do you think this is a healthy neighborhood? I do. I do. Okay. A lot of walking, a lot of families, a lot of people who know one another. Yeah, I definitely think this is a, is a healthy neighborhood. So is there anyone who you think could describe for us what a healthy neighborhood is? I bet a lot of people could do that, but um, I certainly think Carol Naughton could do that. When you walk into a healthy neighborhood, you know you're in a healthy neighborhood. You look at the kids and you see kids who are thriving. You see kids um, who are walking around in their neighborhood and not worried about walking around in their neighborhood. Carol Naughton is a community developer who lives in Atlanta, Georgia. There's a lot of things you can look at in a neighborhood and get a sense of, is this a place where people are thriving? So you can observe it. Our neighborhoods, the places we live, they're built communities, built environments, infused with value by the institutions and people that support them. Think about your neighborhood, the school where you went, where your kids went. Maybe there's a local park you love or a restaurant where you gather with your friends. Good neighborhoods support our quality of life and healthy longevity. Neighborhoods should support people. They should have the things that people need in their lives, want in their lives, to enjoy a rich, thriving experience in life and really be able to become part of the American dream. But not all neighborhoods are like that. Take East Lake Meadows, once a notorious section in the city of Atlanta. Carol Naughton worked there. It was the place that was broken. Schools were broken, housing was broken, uh, sewer systems were broken. All the things that should have been in place to support families were failing them. It was a really dangerous place to be. The crime rate was really high, 18 times the national average. You know, when you start looking at the number of crimes that are reported, um, it gives you a sense of how difficult life was and how fragile life was. Over the last month, We've told you the stories of long-lived communities, like Presidio County, Texas, Co-op City in the Bronx, Wayne County, Kentucky. It's hard to think of three more different places in this country, but they're connected by the fact that they are healthy, stable, and safe places to live. Despite low incomes and sometimes very limited health care, if you live there, you have a good shot at a longer, healthier life. But what if that's not the hand you're dealt? What if you live in a failing neighborhood, one that has high crime rates, bad schools, environmental degradation? What if there are no jobs, no businesses, no grocery stores? What if the city fathers have intentionally built highways or railroad tracks so that you and people who look like you are isolated from the rest of the community? 
If you live in such a place, the odds of a long, healthy life aren't great. But our next two episodes will tell you success stories about longevity and urban poverty. One is a story about staying, one is a story about going. But both stories draw a path towards longer, healthier lives. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, Place Matters. I'm your host, Ken Stern. Today, a story about staying. Dimitri Carpenter and Valencia King have spent most of their lives in Woodlawn, just four miles north of downtown Birmingham, Alabama. Like Eastlake, it's been cut off from prosperity and plagued by poverty and violence. It was a lot of drugs, still is, but a lot of it. I mean, heavily. It was a lot of prostitution. It was a lot of broken homes, broken families. We were here like gunfire from time to time, and I was like, okay, this is not good. Then when I got into high school, that really changed over. And we used to hear frequently gunshots in our community and just a lot of things, I would say, that I don't think as a kid shouldn't see. And then when I got older and I realized that we would have to fight to, um, to make it better. And we've been fighting ever since. But how do you fight for a neighborhood? Eastlake offers a model. At one time, Eastlake was the most notorious neighborhood in all of Atlanta, maybe in all of the state of Georgia. Crime rates were high, the local schools were failing because teachers refused to work there, jobs were non-existent. It was sometimes even referred to locally as Little Vietnam, not because there was anyone of Asian descent in the neighborhood, but because the violence had echoes of the Vietnam War. But some people in the neighborhood and in Atlanta had a vision for change. Here's Carol Naughton again. People will move into a place because of the physical well, the physical house, whether it's an apartment or a single family home. People will move into it because of what their house looks like and what it feels like. But people stay and become part of the community because of all these other amenities that are in the neighborhood, the great schools, the YMCAs, the grocery stores. Those are the kinds of things that make life um, fun, easier, interesting, um, rather than just your home. So it's thinking more broadly about what we're trying to deliver to families and to communities. We're trying to deliver a great neighborhood experience, not just great housing. Neighborhoods should support people. They should have the things that people need in their lives, want in their lives to enjoy a rich, thriving experience in life and really be able to become part of the American dream. Change doesn't happen overnight, but in Eastlake, residents, local philanthropists, and the Atlanta Housing Authority developed a shared vision of what a healthy community could be, a place with decent housing, good schools, a connection to health care and jobs, a place of hope, not fear. Today, Eastlake is a vision realized. The low-income housing project has been replaced by mixed-income, mixed-race housing. Test scores at Drew Charter School routinely rank among the best in Georgia, and graduation rates approach 100%. Transportation works, grocery stores have come in, and the neighborhood is safe and walkable. And we know that when neighborhoods become healthy, so do its residents. The success of Eastlake inspired the creation of purpose-built communities, a nonprofit with a mission of helping neighborhoods around the country find their own version of Eastlake's success. Naughton is now the CEO of Purpose-Built Communities, and Woodlawn is one of her partners. And so they are 
actually replicating the purpose-built model of um, high-quality mixed-income housing, a cradle-through-college education pipeline, uh, community health and wellness, and economic vitality uh, in a way that serves the neighborhood with a community quarterback organization that helps move that all forward. The notion of a community quarterback, an organization that can marshal resources and help align a common vision, is critical to the purpose-built model. Naughton has seen it work in Eastlake and now in Woodlawn. The, the community uh, is vibrant. They've done some amazing work with single-family homeowners. They attracted $500,000 of money from the state from the mortgage fraud settlement and invested that in single-family homeowners. Uh, providing grants for people to improve their houses. These were existing homeowners. They leveraged that with other uh, philanthropy from other banks to improve the housing for people who already lived in the neighborhood. And then they've worked with the schools. They've started now a, uh, a new charter school. They've worked with a, health, uh, a neighborhood health clinic, just doing great things in the community. And it's, it's just a beautiful place. It's a more organic effort than East Lake Meadows, which was a big public housing project with, you know, 54 acres and then 30 acres here and 20 acres there. This is a more of a typical neighborhood scale and it is beautiful. You are going to love it. I can't wait till you get there. That's all the encouragement we needed to go. Of course, I drove from DC and Carrie and Aaron flew to Birmingham to meet up in person. We wanted to experience the revitalization of Woodlawn for ourselves. I'm producer Carrie Thompson. And I'm Erin Bump, also a producer for the series. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me for most Americans, the name Birmingham still echoes with an era of segregation and violence. This is Birmingham, the South's mightiest industrial city as the world knew it this week. These are the front lines of the battle between Dr. Martin Luther King's Negro Disciples of Nonviolence and the uniformed forces of Birmingham, led by Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor, who says, we were trying to be nice to them, but they won't let us be. The Negro leaders say... Well, Birmingham is a symbol of hardcore resistance to integration. It is probably the most thoroughly segregated uh, city in the United States, and it has had uh, more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches than any city in the United States. And the injustices inflicted upon Negroes uh, are no uh, notorious reality. The air of segregation still hangs heavy over Birmingham with consequences for health and life expectancy. Segregation itself, the actual uh, experience of, of discrimination and racism uh, and social isolation is harmful to our health. That's Stephen Wolf, a professor of public health at Virginia Commonwealth University. The trauma that people experience uh, in segregated communities has a known adverse effect on health. And so these, these place-based conditions are, are powerful drivers of health. And, and that's why you get these massive differences in life expectancy across neighborhoods. People who live in segregated and unequal neighborhoods experience shorter lives. But that's not the whole story of Birmingham, because when it comes to life expectancy, Birmingham is a modern success story. In the first decade and a half of the century, the people in Birmingham's poorest neighborhoods gained a full three-year increase in life expectancy 
a number higher than all but one other area in the U.S. And Woodlawn offers clues as to why. We get to Birmingham on a sunny afternoon. And one of the first things we do when we arrive in Woodlawn is ditch the car to explore the business district. So walking along First Avenue, which is one of the main arteries of Woodlawn, trains in the background, which sort of define the the neighborhood uh, because they crisscross virtually every every section of this neighborhood. Woodlawn High School is to our right. Um, uh, turn of the century building, sort of a vast edifice, one of the five major high schools in, in, in the city. And the left is actually a brand new uh, transit center for, for, for Woodlawn, which Woodlawn United built. It's actually quite lovely, sort of terraced. And they're going to build I think, 60 units of uh, transit-oriented housing, affordable housing, right next door to it, so to tie together affordable housing and transit as part of their community plan. And there goes the trains again. You can't avoid them in Woodlawn. Well, there's a double line that divides Woodlawn from Crestwood, which is a higher income, largely white neighborhood on the other side of the tracks. Um, but you have to cross. You have to cross a, a line and you go 35 feet and then you cross two lines. It's, it's more train tracks than I think I've ever seen before around in any sort of any neighborhood. But look, I mean, you got sort of the tattoo parlor that's closed and a lot of vacant buildings. I mean, Woodlawn's come a long way, but it's got a long way still to go. But where has Woodlawn been? We stopped in to chat with David Fleming, the executive director of Rev Birmingham. Well, Birmingham was founded to make iron and steel. It was an industrial city, uh, and, and it was well-suited with the natural resources here to, to be a great, and, and, you know, the kind of city that the Industrial Revolution loved, you know. But then along came the end of the Industrial Age, and uh, Birmingham had a lot facing it. Uh, it, A, had the need to transition its economy, uh, really after World War II, from a really industrial-based economy to something else, more service and otherwise. But it also had to face its um, uh, you know, problems of segregation and, and racial separation. So we had those dual threats that Birmingham had. And so that created, during the 60s and 70s, um, a, a very uh, interesting and challenging environment for our city. Um, we, of course, had, like every city, uh, after World War II, as the nation suburbanized more and everybody owned a car and it just forced a lot of people into suburban growth here. And then, of course, uh, largely initially white people were moving to get away from integration. At the genesis of the city, black businesses and um, uh, Every other business could locate anywhere in Birmingham. And you have to imagine that it was probably, I forget how many blocks it was, it was a very small, small place. Uh, but uh, African-American businesses were uh, really developing alongside everyone else. Ivan Holloway is the director of Urban Impact in Birmingham. And then uh, Jim Crow showed up and said that uh, there has to be uh, spatial awareness and we need to separate things. And so businesses were then pushed from the center of Birmingham to the edge of downtown Birmingham. When a federal court ordered desegregation of Birmingham city schools in 1971, Woodlawn experienced profound change. Whites left the community, blacks moved in. 
and home ownership went down. Half the homes were owner-occupied in the early 70s, but by 1975, that number had fallen all the way to 20%. And today, that segregation is still the norm. In many ways, Birmingham is still um, very segregated, but by choice now, not by law. David Fleming. We have um, the Woodlawn neighborhood as a whole is largely African-American and largely low income. Uh, We have seen some kind of people trickling in there um, from from other uh, demographic groups. You know, Birmingham as a whole, you'll still find a lot of um, neighborhoods that are largely one thing or another. Dimitri Carpenter, a resident since he was a young teenager, describes it this way. It's so segregated here. You know, in Birmingham, we have 1.3 million people in our metro area, and we have about 26 school systems. All of them look like the people that live there. And so we're just behind by a significant margin. Uh, Our state government wants to be this way, and uh, it's just hard. It's a lot of reasons that nobody really wants to talk about, but it's a lot of reasons. Mashonda Taylor is eager to talk about Woodlawn and all the changes she's seen. So what what, what was uh, Woodlawn like in 2012 when you moved here? Oh, 2012. Mashonda began as an office administrator for Woodlawn United in 2012 and is now its executive director. Give us a street scene. Street scene. A lot of blighted buildings and homes. Um, vacant lots. People were not walking up and down the street, and if they were, not legally, or doing legal things. Um, dark. And when I say that, like, in the literal sense where a lot of lights weren't working, a lot of overgrown lots, um, there were some, like, pockets of people starting to work. The YW, um, they were sitting in this kind of island, the Christ Health Center, Dream Center, like there was this probably two or three block radius where you could see some movement happening. It just wasn't, even when I started, my mom was like, you're going to work where? <laughs> um, a lot of times people, if you were at a light too long, you would drive straight through it. Didn't care if it was red or not. Um, but it was a different place. Different place. 11 years later, there's still a fair number of vacant lots. And the neighborhood does seem a little too quiet for a Tuesday morning except, of course, for the ever-present trains. But we wanted to see for ourselves what had changed. Oh, let's cut through here. This is, this is one of the things I want to show you. We take a detour behind one of the buildings. So one of the passions for Woodlawn United has been to bring local muralists and painters into the area. And instead of being a place defined by its graffiti, be a place defined by its public art. So we're walking down a not just a back alley. I think it's done in partner with an organization called Blank Spaces. And they've now labeled the, this otherwise unremarkable alley, The Way. And there are five, six, seven really quite beautiful striking murals. It's a tribute to someone called Rupi. And then we notice a long line of people queuing up outside a restaurant down the block. We haven't seen that many people in Woodlawn in our time here, but apparently they're all waiting to come to the Slutty Vegan when it opened. We are at the Slutty Vegan, which opened up in uh, Woodlawn within the last month. So. There is a lot of energy here between the train tracks, the beating music, the line of people waiting to get in. I mean, are you hungry, Ken? Actually, not at all. 
Erin? Am I hungry? Yes, quite. I didn't eat, I don't eat breakfast, so. You get uh, fussy hussy. What was the first burger up there? The first burger that's up there. Um, As we talk to people in line, it's clear they've come from all across Birmingham and even outside of town to eat here. It's a diverse crowd, and there's an energetic, positive vibe that is unmistakable. We wondered how the slutty vegan, a growing national chain launched by Atlanta entrepreneur Pinky Cole, landed here in Woodlaw on a strip with virtually no restaurants at all. Her model is to come into a community that's really on the brink. She calls it gentrification, but I tell her, I was like, you got to be careful with that word down here. Um, but she's more or less like economically being developed, right? So she wants to buy a building, right? Mashonda Taylor volunteered to take us on a driving tour of Woodlawn. So she buys the building from Rev Birmingham. Um, we work alongside her just to help with making sure that she is able to build and Two, almost two years later, she opens in Woodlawn. But that's because we're here. Mashand is a powerhouse with an impressive track record of bringing businesses to Woodlawn. So now we're um, a place like people literally just come into the community and now they're staying because we have other businesses that are supporting it. So you've got Polaris there, you've got um, Thrive uh, Wellness, you've got the Marketplace, which is uh, coffee, and then you've got... Uh, business owners that are uh, selling their goods out of the marketplace. So you've got coffee there. Um, you've got Detrespo, which is a consignment shop that we recruited from uh, Homewood, which is a more affluent community or middle-class community. And so you have all of this happening within this thriving business core. So outside of that, what happens next? Residential, right? Bringing in business is so key to the I'm development sure. model, but they only tend to show up and stay once other things are in place. So I'm starting us on the western side of Woodlawn um, around I-3 Academy, uh, which was built uh, throughout the pandemic and opened in August of 2020. Uh, a full K through uh, five charter uh, following the Drew Charter School model in Atlanta um, and looked at not only the education aspect of what you know this building was, but what it, like the catalytic development that could come around it. Developing a thriving K-12 education, similar to the Eastlake model in Atlanta, is central to the long-term success of Woodlawn. So this space would have been blighted within our community. Now granted, around it, there were a lot of issues of safety, right? Um, had a lot of hot spots and a lot of you know, criminal activity that was happening around this area. But when you put a school, right, with New, like a number of security like features around it with cameras and um, off-duty police officers and things like that, it changes the dynamic of what this community is on this side. So this is about three years of work. Um, Mashanda envisions great change in Woodlawn, but knows that that takes resources. So $1.5 million have been allocated towards critical repair and homeowner uh, rehab, 141 different uh, projects within the community. Um, whether that's a new roof, new floor, plumbing, um, exterior paint, um, new bathrooms, uh, cabinets. A lot of times we get asked to do new kitchens because we have a lot of people that cook within the community. Um, but it's, it's something to have these new bills that are coming alongside of you, but then you don't get your needs met. And so 
one of the things that we endeavored to do is just to bring equity across housing, period. So as we come into Southwood Lawn, Southwood Lawn is where everything started. And this is about 13 years of work. You've got Christ Health Center, um, the Dream Center. So, but it all started in this corner, which where you have the Family Resource Center with the YWCA. You've got 60 units of affordable uh, rental. Yes, those are on the right. Those are affordable rentals. Yes. And then and intermingled through here you have some homeowner rehab and we also have leadership living within the community and you know we've had a lot of really interesting things happen here. Mashonda is talking about the place where everything started. Christ Health Center, the Dream Center, the YWCA, all within a few blocks of each other. It's clear that so much has changed but we're wondering about Mashonda's perspective on that change. Ten years ago um we were a completely different place. And honestly, 10 years from now, we will be a completely different, in a different place. And the focus will be different, right? Because right. 10 years from now, you know, we're going to really start seeing the economic proof points of like our education system playing out, the workforce development programs playing out, um, the intentionality of creation of wealth within home ownership, and even having the honest conversation of, you know, historically, the residents that have owned homes here, they didn't get to see that. So how do we make sure that it's rectified and that the next generation, they don't have the burden that this other generation had before and that they truly can benefit from what it is the American dream to own a home? The American dream and who has access to it. We finish our driving tour and say goodbye. We walk over to the little triangle of development where the early revitalization of Woodlawn started. When we walk in the front door of Christ Health Center, we notice there are two full rooms of people waiting to be seen. So we do all the things from family medicine, dental, pharmacy, um, and behavioral health. We do a lot of counseling and psychiatric work. So we see about 52,000 patients a year, and about 18,000 of those are unique people. So, um, a very busy practice. That's Dimitri Carpenter again, the man we're here to see. He's the chief culture officer for the clinic, working as a liaison with the community of Woodlawn. So what does Christ Health Center mean to the Woodlawn community? How's it brought change to the area? One way is because that it's been here 13 years now, so a lot of people have become familiar with it. They trust it easy. We've seen so many places come and go. I mean, I don't, from grocery store to restaurant to shopping options, whatever, they come and go. They don't stay. Christ Telson has stayed. And Christ Telson was one of the first things to come. You know, you saw Christ Telson, Church of the Highlands, Woodlawn United. Those were three of the entities that came and, and are still here. And that's why so many people trust it. Um, we've expanded services here. We've hired from the community. About a dozen of our employees live directly around us. And so Christ Health Center has proven that we came to do what we said we were coming to do. So um, uh, over the 13 years or so that the center's been here, um, how's the health of the community changed? Good question. I can't really measure that, obviously, but our doctors can. I think for me personally, I came in mentally unhealthy, physically even in a lot of ways because my blood pressure was high. Um, I won't get in trouble telling my own business. My <laughs> blood pressure was high. And I was just in a bad spot. Christ Health Center made me better. 
the people I met, the doctors who believe that they don't have all the answers. So a lot of places want to make people better. They want to they want to heal the sick. Well, we want to heal the sick too, but we also want to make the person whole. And however that looks for the person, that's what we're committed to. So one of the departments I get to oversee is our case management department and our outreach. So I have case managers who work with people to connect them to community resources. A big part of our budget goes to that, where we connect people to resources. We pay bills for people. We provide bus passes to people. We pay for transportation options for people. And for a lot of other things that we don't that don't make sense to our board sometimes, but um, we like to to take care of the whole people and families. I asked Dimitri how he ended up working at Christ Health Center. Well, uh, I was 17 years old, and uh, my dad was in prison since I was three, so I didn't trust I didn't trust a lot of people. But there was one man who Dimitri met at the time who helped him turn things around. His name is Dr. Robert Record, the CEO of Christ Health Center. And they met in an unusual way. So I'm walking home from school, and it was a time in our country where you saw a lot of stuff with, like, police uh, and Trayvon Martin. I don't know if you saw the, the, the remember the kid from Florida getting killed by the Hispanic yeah, yeah. guy. It was a lot of police and black kids stuff happening. Like, it was just new to the, I guess it was just new to the country. The media was amplifying it. It was loud. I was 17. I'm absorbing it. Don't know how to process it. Dad's been out of my life. Mom had six kids by six different men. None of them were in our life. So I didn't trust men. And for this white man to stop me walking home from school, I was just like, who are you? You know. And he was with a group of other white people. And in Woodline, you didn't see white people, unless they were school teachers, librarian, or police officer, um, just standing around. You know. And um, again, my heart was a little black because of what, all the things that were happening in the country. And also on top of my dad and all the other men who were not um, present. And had been present, but didn't stick. So I just didn't trust people. I said, oh, who is this guy? Like, what did I do wrong? Like, what he want? I was just pro- trying to process this thing. And he was like, hey, hey, just want to tell you, like, what we're doing here. Don't care, though. And he started telling me about the outreach center that is next door, the health center that we're in now. <clears throat> I was like, oh, great. Y'all want to bring that to Woodline? He said, yeah, we want to bring it to Woodline. He said, uh, we're coming for people like you, you know. He said, you seem like a great kid, and we want you to be a part of it. I said, yeah. I said, yeah, I'm not a great kid, though. I said, uh, I don't want to be a part of it. I wanted to be with my friends hanging out. He said, well, you can do that here. You know, it was the Dream Center. It was through a church called Church of the Hollands, which was one of the first entities to come to Woodlawn and lead the transformation, in my opinion. Um, so started coming around and stuff, and uh, he would become my mentor. Not knowing, though, he introduced himself as Robert, but he was the CEO of Christ Health Center and also a doctor. And uh, he was just so personable, and I trusted him ultimately. And then we started dreaming about next steps. Well, my mom had a GED, and we didn't really value education in the house because my grandma didn't even finish high school. Couldn't even write a paper. Couldn't, she couldn't read well. She grew up in a time where, you know, it was just different. So uh, I was just like, we don't go to college, dude. Like, I don't want to go to college. Um, everybody in the hood was telling me I need to be like my dad. His name was Rodney. He was in prison, and, I, and they said, you need to continue where Rodney started, you know, run the streets. So I was a little conflicted, but I trusted him, and he told me, he said, you want to do something different? I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to work in a warehouse and make $15 an hour. That's what they were paying, and I said, I'm just going to get an apartment in a car. He said, no, that's not different. 
Hence, I want you to create change. I want you to be a change agent. I want you to pursue something different. He said, you ever thought about college? I said, oh, no, we don't do that, dude. Long story short, ended up going to college um, because he pushed me to challenge myself. Dimitri went to college to Baylor University in Texas on a scholarship. But he struggled there, and he had to return to Woodlawn to finish his degree online. He also went to Ministry College at the Church of the Highlands and recently was invited to lead the Birmingham Dream Center. But he soon came to question his calling when gun violence re-entered his life. My brother was killed in February. I was close to giving up on the church because I felt like the church wasn't doing enough. Gun violence in Birmingham is through the roof. Over 100 people every year, and 90 of them look like me every year. And I just got sick of it. When it was my little brother, I, you know, I had to identify his body. And I remember looking at him that night saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And I blamed myself for him laying there because I felt like I didn't do enough. However, it wasn't me. It was just me being emotional. Um, but I started getting frustrated with the church. And they reached out to me and told me about the opportunity, Dr. Record. I always believed that I could do it. And um, instead of saying no, I said, maybe this is God telling me this is the response that I need you to say yes to. You know, you want to do more, go do more. You know, so I tell people the devil has done a great job figuring out how to take us out of here, particularly black men between 18 and 28 years old. I want to do everything I can to counter what he's doing. Um, so the Birmingham Dream Center will be able to respond to that. Now Dimitri is mentoring young men in the Woodlawn community, high school students, college students, and plans to continue his work as a mentor when he transitions full-time to lead the Dream Center. Dimitri stayed, Mashanda stayed, and their work, and those of many other organizations and people across the community, has changed Woodlawn. Recently, a ribbon was cut on the first completely new-built house in the neighborhood in decades. New businesses like the Slutty Vegan are coming in, and kids can play on the streets just as they do in Eastlake. Everyone in Woodlawn will tell you that they still have a long way to go. Urban blight is still unavoidable, the crime rate's way too high, the railroad tracks still strangle the neighborhood, and COVID set back economic development plans by years. But none of that has undermined a shared community vision or diminished a strong sense of hope in a place that had none for decades. Low-income neighborhoods typically have poor health but we've also seen that a sense of hope, a reduction in toxic stress can translate to better health and ultimately increase life expectancy. Which is what is happening in Woodlawn and across all of Birmingham. So we cross the tracks one final time. Carefully. Looking both ways. And before we head out of town, we pose for a group photo in front of a sign that says, Birmingham, we're glad you're here. And we're glad that people like Mashanda and Dimitri stayed and we hope you'll come back for our next episode and find out how good things can happen to health and longevity when people leave. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Aaron Bump. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. I'm Ken Stern. Thanks for listening.